0: We have a very exciting task before, us, as far as I'm concerned, going through the entire Gospel of Mark between now and Easter. We're starting in the middle, this Transfiguration Sunday, with the history of our Lord's Transfiguration. But before we get there, chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, to be our focus here in, in this service, I want to give us a little bit of context and try to set up where we're going all the way through. So again, now, you know, if you you don't come every week, you're not going to hurt. You're not going to miss out exactly. But if you do come every week, you're going to get more out of this. There's just no question about that. And if you take notes, you're going to get more out of this. And and if you can understand that here at St. Paul, uh, the sermon is the Bible study. That'll really help you. All right. I'm not just up here as a talking head. I'm up here to edify you in what God's holy word says so it can be yours. Yeah? And that's what Bible study is supposed to be. It's not a bunch of facts you memorize so you can be smart at parties. Although, wouldn't that be fun? Well, lore master party for Bible history. But anyway, the sermon is our classroom. And so we're studying the gospel of Mark, and there's a number of reasons for this. One is I just wanted to do something different after Isaiah, something about as far away from Old Testament kingdoms as we could get. Another reason is because I love the gospel of Mark. It is the underrated gospel. Now, maybe to you, all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John seem the same, uh, they're not. Once you start looking, they're quite different. And Mark just always kind of comes in last in terms of how everyone likes to talk about it. John is amazing. Matthew is the primary gospel Luke, the historian. Everyone's got a piece. But then you got Mark. He's kind of like poor Matthew's brother kind of thing. But I don't I don't think that's the way Mark is. I think Mark is pretty special. And a big part of it is who the Holy Spirit is in Mark. And a huge part of that is, I'm going to bring these, I think, four things back repeatedly throughout this whole series, is that the Holy Spirit in Mark is a spirit that is, uh, it's, a, it's a heavenly kingdom you don't imagine as a normal human. A normal human doesn't think of God as being quite like the spirit of Mark. Now, to some extent we do, but but no, not really. So first off, the spirit of Mark is the spirit of dynamic authority. And by that, I mean the kind of authority that doesn't care if you like it or not. But it's going to tell you what's going to be, and it's going to be, because that's the kind of authority Jesus has over everything. It's going to blow people away in the storyline. Who is this guy? They're going to ask. He commands even the wind? That'd be nice on a snowy morning, wouldn't it now? The spirit of Mark is a spirit of authority. The spirit of Mark is a spirit of madness. People think Jesus is crazy in Mark's gospel. And if you're watching the story, you kind of have to agree sometimes, unless it's revealing the fact that he ain't crazy, we are. He's calling it out all the time. And people who don't want to hear their repentance called out, then blame Jesus. He's crazy. Right. We get that at the church all the time, by the way. I don't mean, St. Paul, I mean, the Christian church gets told that we're crazy because people don't want to repent of their evil. Happens all the time. Huh? Spirit of Mark, authority, madness. The other thing you maybe wouldn't expect from the Bible, the spirit of violence. Mark is rife with conflict. Jesus' enemies don't just plan to kill him. They plot to destroy him. That's the kind of language Mark uses there. Violence is going to be, conflict is going to be, with the demons, is going to be a big part of the story of Mark. The spirit of Mark. Finally, the spirit of Mark is a spirit of fear. Now, this is an important thing to kind of pause on because fear has two meanings in the New Testament, maybe in the Old as well. And John is very clear in his epistle to say that one type of fear has no place in the Christian's life. Ultimately, that perfect love, it is God's love in Christ, serves to drive out your fear. And that's a promise from scripture, that living under God, you're going to have less fear of men. Okay, Less fear of men is the idea there. Uh, But Mark's spirit of fear is the spirit of the fear of God, which isn't quite what perfect love drives away. Perfect love kind of shows that the love of God and the fear of God are the same thing. You can't actually love a God as a God if you don't fear him a little bit. That would mean you'd think you're bigger than he is, basically, at all times. In any case, we're going to see that fear today in the Transfiguration story, but expect that to come back. A couple other things that are going to come back. Jesus came to do some very specific things. He came to be Lord, again, the authority action going on there. I am a king, he says. Yeah. He came to be Lord, too. He came to forgive the faithful. We like to think about forgiving sinners. That's true, too. But Mark is going to focus on those who trust him, right? He forgives those who trust him. That's They trust him, and therefore, he is able to forgive them. If you don't trust him, all he can do is say, well, I guess you're stuck in your sins. He forgives the faithful. We're going to see that come out. Jesus came to be Lord to forgive the faithful. He came to drive out demons. I mentioned the demonic conflict a moment ago. We won't see that exactly today, except at the late service, we will. Not very far away, even from the Mount of Transfiguration. We just sang that song a moment ago, Come With Us to the Plain, right? That whole song's about the text of the transfiguration. They're going down the mountain to the plain. Guess what's on the plain? demon-possessed boy, no one can cast the demon out. Even the apostles can't wrestle with this one. Uh, we'll, We'll maybe touch on that here if our time permits this morning. Jesus came to be Lord, forgive the faithful, drive out demons, end the world. He's the end times king. He's coming to bring the doom of man, right? And the regeneration of the kingdom which is to come. And in this way, being Lord, forgiving sins, drive out demons, and ending the world, he comes to change your mind. You. Take your mind, make it his own. To take your body, make it his own. Right? To bring you into his kingdom as an extension of his word. That is then all of these things. Be Lord, forgive the faithful, drive out demons, end the world, change your mind. That all is preach the word. We're going to say Jesus is no respecter of persons. He's not trying to cajole. He's not trying to say, well, we'd really like you to join our club. So if we have to change this thing about us so that you'll be friendly and come back, we'll do it. None of that from Jesus. Let the dead bury their own dead, he says. Again, Mark is a fascinating story. Jesus is not the guy you get from the Sunday school books. Love Jesus, love. See how sweet he is with the sparrows. Different dude. Same dude. That's the real thing to hold intention here. It's not as though Jesus being love is not true just because he also will curse a fig tree because it won't give him figs. Those things are held together. Again, fear and love, the Okay, so those are things that are gonna be coming back why start in the middle? We're starting in the middle because it's Transfiguration Sunday, first of all. I, I couldn't rightly skip Transfiguration Sunday. We needed to start this series. And so I thought, well, we'll just move it to you know the start of the whole series. But then, uh, wouldn't you know, the Transfiguration is a central linchpin to the entire structure of the book. Or to say that differently, it's smack dab in the absolute middle. And this way kicks off everything that's going to happen leading up to the cross and completes everything that's going to happen before this moment. Okay, So it is like the nugget at the heart of the book. What are you really supposed to get from the end of Mark's gospel if it ends with the women running away afraid and the ending part about the resurrection is an addition from later? Now, we know the resurrection exists Because Matthew, Luke, John, all of Paul, Peter. But it's possible Mark doesn't confess it. It's possible the last eight verses are not part of it. So then the women run away in fear as the ancient manuscripts say. What are we supposed to get from that? You're supposed to go back to the middle and look at the transfiguration. He's risen. The angel said so. You just don't see him. So where is he? Well, go look at that transfiguration again. Remember who this guy is. Yeah, uh, so th- these would be kind of the reasons to start here in the middle. Again, we're going to pick up on these themes I just mentioned a moment ago, and we'll see those show up throughout the series. So, chapter nine, verses one through twenty-nine. We're going to look at one through thirteen, but fourteen to twenty-nine, the back end. It'll be part of the later sermon. You can always get those online. So the late service sermon, um, but you can also go home and read up on it. This is that story of them coming down the mountain to the plain where there's this young boy who is so possessed by this demon that he will at times try to drown himself and at times try to burn himself alive. And all the apostles are gathered around and they're all arguing with each other. No one's casting the demon out. They're fighting over why they can't cast the demon out. And the father of the boy runs up to Jesus and and says to him, please help me. Uh, none of your disciples can do this. And Jesus, he, he gets angry, actually. And he says, why do I even put up with you people? And you look it up. It's not, I said, oh, not a direct quote. I paraphrased it a little bit. It's pretty close. Okay. Why do I even put up with you people? Bring me the boy. Then he's like, I'll show mercy anyway. That is the, the thing. So he, he says these things that are serious and vigorous. But then he shows a kindness that is immeasurably just. So bring me the boy. He brings the boy. Uh, there's a little conversation there. He ends up driving that demon out though for certain, restoring the boy. And then the apostles afterwards asking these questions, you know, why? You gave us power to drive out demons. He did. They had that power. They'd been rejoicing in this. Uh, but now this one we can't. And You get this really weird enigmatic answer about how, well, this kind of demon only comes out by prayer kind of demon. Oh, interesting. The Bible's not really filled with that information. We don't have a textbook on what that means. Yeah. Uh, What we know though, again, is that there are, I guess, layers of evil. And that if you run into an evil that is so great that even super magical apostle powers and prophetic words can't do anything about it, you have a stronger weapon right in your back pocket all along. It's called prayer to Jesus. That's the place to start with all demonology, all fighting against the darkness, all conflict with the evil one. Are you praying to Jesus? And as you pray to Jesus, is this just something fleeting and offhanded? Is it something mindless and heartless? Or is this, in fact, your faith, your hope, your mind? So that's the story that's going to come right after this one that we're going to dance over. Just did a little bit. So we can focus in on the transfiguration that comes before, but I want you to see this now. So I just told you a story about a demon, right? And that is the parallel to the story about the mountain where Jesus is transfigured. These two stories are hooked to each other at the heartbeat of the gospel of Mark. And can you see then how at the heartbeat of the gospel of Mark is a battle between heaven and hell? That's it. There's a war between light and darkness going on. You have a king of men who shines like the sun and you have uh, wicked, unclean spirits from the abyss who take your children and make them their own and cast them into destruction. And these two things, these two kingdoms cannot live in peace with each other, will not live in peace with each other. And Jesus' presence is the reign of His kingdom. Saying, "I'm gonna win. I'm gonna take it all." Uh, so let's let's pull that with us back into this moment of transfiguration, where we're gonna see Jesus shine, right? Because that's that's the good news then, right? That's that's the pretty ending. Right? Now that's the the King who fights for you, and and here it is. Okay, so chapter nine of Mark's Gospel starts on page 844 of your Pew Bible. You can get most of what you need out of the bulletin today, but we are going to look at chapter 9, verse 1. It was not in the bulletin. Probably um, does belong with the previous chapter in terms of breakup and how that goes. Um, and yet it really does connect to what happens next in our hymn we sang a moment ago, even picked up on that. Uh, it, verse nine or Verse 1 says, He, Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That verse by itself, if you take the kingdom of God to mean the end of the world, can be used by skeptics to say Jesus was wrong. That the world was supposed to end before the apostles died, and it didn't. And so whatever Jesus foretold was a lie. I've actually had conversations with former Christians, wherein this was the argument that destroyed their faith. He sat there and he told me that this was the argument. He used to have faith. This argument destroyed his faith. I I was supposed to answer it to fix his faith. Uh, And I said to him, well, the answer is not about the end of the world. That's the answer it's about what happens next in the story. It's about the transfiguration. (laughs) Some of you standing here will not taste death till you see the kingdom of God. Why does that have to mean the end of the world? Can it mean Jesus in all his glory? Which is again, what's gonna happen now in the story, right? So I want you to see how that verse, even though it's split up editorially, it really leads right into verse two, They're about to have it happen. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, led them up a high mountain by themselves. So, you know, going off alone with Peter, James, and John is something he does from time to time. Why those three are singled singled out is um, uh, curious. I mean, we know more about those three guys than some of the other apostles. Uh, Peter, of course, we have, you know, Acts is largely about him and we have writings from him. John written, wrote the gospel. John uh, wrote the revelation, right? James, not the one who wrote the book of James. This is James, John's brother who dies shortly after Stephen. He's like the first apostle who is killed. So we don't have any writings from from James, son of thunder, you know, you might think of him as. Um, But he takes these three guys with him. He often does this. uh, They're his close kind of circle. Led them up a high mountain by themselves. We don't know where this mountain is. Scholars debate it. it. doesn't matter that much. But remember Moses, yes? Remember Sinai. Remember when God shows up to talk to people in the Old Testament, it's often on a mountain, whether you're Solomon, whether you're Elijah. So here now Jesus is going to have the same kind of thing. He's going to fulfill all of those previous stories, including Sinai. Huh? Uh, as he is transfigured before them the word metamorpho metamorph right mighty morphin power Rangers. I just saw that poster the other day again. I can't believe it's still around but uh, a morphine changing shape right and to to change the the entirety of your being metamorphosis like a butterfly that's the idea only the result isn't he grows wings and a proboscis or whatever the result is that he's going to shine right his clothes, became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. I believe that part's unique to to Mark. That bit about bleach. So I don't know, have you you worked with bleach? Can you imagine trying to bleach it as white as you could possibly get it? Think of wedding dress, of course. They're always gonna be pristine white. And he's saying, yeah, 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 that's kind of like dull faded compared to what Jesus' clothes were doing on this day. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mention his face the way Matthew does, right? But again, his, his clothes shine. Now, I always find this fascinating myself. Like, if you had a flashlight right here, and you're shining it at my my chasuble, like the light's going to hit the chasuble, and on the other side, there's not going to be a beam down down on the floor, right? The, the, the clothing's going to stop the light. Uh, uh, we cast shadows in this age. But Jesus suddenly is like not casting shadows. He's casting light instead. His clothes join in the game. Kind of amazing. Like the whole universe upside down in Jesus, but for good. Yeah, cool moment. Then with him, verse 4, there appear Elijah with Moses. And they're talking with Jesus. So uh, here you have the two principal prophets of the Old Testament. If by prophet, specifically, we need we mean person called by god to be the voice of god as a as a picture of jesus with their lives and no one has the impact on the history and life of the people of israel before jesus like moses and elijah do okay uh, and so in this way these two men are the whole old testament just sitting there kind of handing it off to Jesus. Huh? Um, uh, Elijah also, of course, is the one who ascended into heaven, and so as a result did not die. So some do speculate that Moses also ascended into heaven and did not die, kind of based on the connection here. That's not what the Old Testament text says. The Old Testament text says that he died and that God took care of the body. God dealt with it, right? But not that he, he never died and ascended. Uh, there is another guy who did ascend. His name is Enoch, but Enoch does not show up here. Uh, So Moses and Elijah, principal prophets of the Old Testament, principal personalities, talking with Jesus. uh, About what? About what? Well, Luke tells us about his death. They're conversing about his death. They know he's the fulfillment. Uh, Peter doesn't. He doesn't get any of this. He says rabbi, which is Often, not a good name for Jesus in any of the gospels. Sometimes it is. Um, It is good that we are here. He says, or him mentioned that line. So he he gets that it's like, oh, this is glory. I'm near glory, the Christ. Look here, he is. Uh, How about I make three tabernacles, three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Why on earth would he do that? It's just the weirdest kind of thing, don't you think? Um, But if If you're used to being more of an ancient people where houses are kind of muddy brick and a nice tent is a high-quality thing, and you're planning to set up, say, a guru shop where people come from all over to hear you and your other wise disciples talk on a mountain somewhere— Um, So that the whole world can come to that place and see the revelation that you have just begun to reveal. Well, then maybe a couple of tents to do well for nighttime, right? Got to get it ready and people can talk to you privately and they can go in and they can learn about the kingdom. So I think that's where he's going with this. Yeah. Um, But it's it's still kind of weird. Some scholars make a deal about how what he's really wanting to do is just stay there in heaven. Like he's effectively in heavenly experience. He's got nothing but joy and gladness right now. He's like, let's just make it last forever. Why bring anybody else? But um, And Jesus is really wanting him to go down the mountain and back to the world and do mission or something like that. Um, that's fine. It's not necessarily wrong. But I think the bigger idea here is that he thinks the kingdom of God is beginning. So let's do it like of old. Moses set up a tabernacle of meaning. Huh? Uh, Jesus, let's set up one for him and for you and for Elijah. And we'll just get it all going right here. Right, but verse six tells us he didn't know what he was talking about because they were terrified. Spirit of fear, spirit of fear, good fear, bad fear. Ah, this one's kind of in the middle, right? uh, They're afraid, but they they're kind of afraid for the wrong reasons. It's not really good fear at this moment, um, and you can tell that by the fact that it's impacting what he says. You know how this is? Like, you know how this works? Like, you see a mugger coming at you? Be a tiger if you want. You pick. What's the first thing that happens? Your body goes, what's that? That's intake of oxygen to feed the blood so that your muscles can run. Okay? Now you tense up. And when that happens, this is also then sending blood into all your muscles so that you can run. This makes a lot of sense. But all that blood was somewhere else before that moment. You know where that blood was? It's in your head. Now you got less blood in your head and more in your muscles because you got scared. Fight or flight response, is normal we all do it, but guess what? It makes stupid. Huh? When you're scared, you're stupid. And so that's kind of what just happened here. Peter got scared, said something stupid. That's not the main lesson from the text, but it's worth seeing that it's there. Yeah? Peter is terrified because he doesn't understand what's going on. And he wants to find peace with God. That's why he is our model. He's seeking here. He's not really sinning. Like anyone who would criticize what he said, which again, he, he did not know what to say, this isn't meant to be a judgment. Well, we should all hate on Peter. Right? It's more to see like in his terror, what's he do? He just starts to say stuff where what should he do? And that's what's going to happen next. He should listen rather than talk we'll get there first, the cloud. Verse seven, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now that cloud, like the fiery pillar at Sinai, should really ring a few bells. Of course, the cloud shows up other times, such as when Solomon prays and the temple is filled with the glory of God. So clouds are about the presence of God at the end of Luke's gospel, Acts, when Jesus ascends and is hidden by the clouds. Same idea; he's going to the glory of God. So here is all the glory of Mount Sinai surrounding them, and I honestly imagine this like a dark thunderhead with lightning bursts everywhere. That's 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 my world. Jesus is shining, but everything else is darkness. So it's my imagination. So this comes over them, but more important than that, I mean, it's important that you you see it as terrifying, but. Once it's terrifying, it's then what happens, right? All of this great power of God just descends upon them after Peter makes this statement about a couple of tabernacles, and then God speaks, which is so rare. So rare for the father to speak without the son. This is my beloved son. Don't make me talk. Listen to him. (laughs) Listen to him. They look around, and everything's gone. No Moses, no Elijah, no cloud, just Jesus. Just the man Jesus. He ain't shining anymore either. He's he's veiled his glory, right? He's in his humiliation. Just Jesus. And they go down from the mountain. And he starts to tell them, to tell no one what they had seen, verse 9, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Boom. Crucifixion and resurrection prediction. Jesus is getting serious with his disciples. He's going to start telling them not just a bunch of parables about wheat and chaff. He's going to tell them what he's actually planning to do, what the whole Old Testament means, that he will soon be killed and need to rise again from the dead. That's why he came. But notice, they kept the matter to themselves questioning what this rising from the dead might mean they had no clue what he was talking about They had no idea how do they not know he's saying it plainly I don't know did that mean that the Jews didn't believe in a resurrection no they believed in a resurrection of all people at the same time they they weren't expecting entirely the death and resurrection of their Christ even though again Uh, You can find rabbinic literature that talks about the suffering servant. And they're they're very well aware in ancient Judaism, before Jesus came, uh, of many of these things. But that said, uh, they don't understand Jesus is all about the cross. That's where we're going now. We're going down this mountain, past that demon, and kicking him out of the little boy on the way to doing that for the entire world to binding the strong man and setting free the sons that have been under Adam's chains. Yeah That's where he's going. That's what Mark's going to be all about then. that he's the one who has the power to do this. He's the one with the authority. right? He's the one just crazy enough to not care. Huh? He's the one who fears God rightly. He's the one who will fight violence with submission to it, knowing he can take it into himself and just suck it dead. Huh? That's where he's going. Where we're going next week is, is back to chapter one. And we're just going to run straight on through the only spot we skip as a whole. We'll be over this set of verses right there that we just talked about and looked at. The one thing I left unspoken about with our one minute here remaining is that little discussion about Elijah that then happens after they don't understand what he said about the resurrection. That goes pretty fast. There's like three lines there that each carry a lot of meaning. But the long and short is that the rabbinic teaching at this time was highly focused on Elijah Read. Uh, re- Uh, rising from the dead, uh, coming back from heaven, whatever that means, before the Christ would come. And everybody believed this. Like, this was not a debate, really. It was really like, who is he, and how should we expect him? To And so they asked Jesus, well, why do they say that, since you're here, and we don't see Elijah anywhere, although they just did. Remember, that's maybe the spawn of the question. And Jesus will turn this into a discussion of John the Baptist. And how John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the prophecies of the forerunner to Christ. And then he will also say, and he as the forerunner had to be like Christ. And so he had to die. So he did. And so also it's written of the son of man that he's going to die. So he he comes back and he he reemphasizes that my plans to die and rise thing, even though they don't get it. And they're about to go down into the argument about the demons. Because again, uh, they don't get it. And so forth. Mark. Chapter 1, the spirit of Mark, the spirit of, so chapter 9, the spirit of authority, the spirit of madness, the spirit of violence, the spirit of fear. Jesus came to be Lord. Jesus came to forgive the faithful. Jesus came to drive out demons. Jesus came to end the world. Jesus came to change your mind. Jesus came to preach the word. In the name of Jesus, amen.